Hey friends, well we resume our series in Matthew's Gospel and I uh, just want to say uh, February the 27th, Sunday 12.30 is our annual general meeting. Love to see you there. And it's been terrific to see so many people coming back to church and uh, uh, looking forward to seeing you if you haven't quite yet made that step. And apart from health reasons, look forward to joining together and praising our awesome God. Um, look, there's probably at least one person and probably more where you find yourself in a power struggle with. By power struggle, I mean, you know, where person A is trying to change person B and person B is not all that interested in wanting to change. Person A wants them to do to do something that they don't want to do or to be someone they don't want to be. And you've got that power struggle developing. I mean, many of us entered marriage. Heck, probably all of us to some extent, wittingly or unwittingly, entered into marriage probably with some implicit expectation that the other person will be something uh, that uh, they didn't end up being. And, uh, and so that's where the power struggle can happen. Um, I think uh, one of the classic examples for me was uh, Paul Tripp tells this lovely story. I've shared it before, but I love it. He's so honest. He talks about how he's a US pastor, talks about how his wife had been on him for a long time about changing regarding his problems with anger. And uh, in a a fit of frustration, he said to her, to his wife, you know, 95% of the women of this church would love to be married to me. Uh, to which she said so disarmingly, I guess I'm part of the 5% then. And uh, nothing like uh, pulling out of a power struggle so beautifully than that. Uh, now, in one sense, the birth of Jesus created the greatest power struggle of all time uh, between Jesus and Herod. Herod wanted to kill Jesus, and Jesus, uh, under God's sovereign hand, was not about to be killed. Uh, and it's surprising because there's nothing more powerless than some, you know, than a baby. You know, you you don't move them; they stay put. You don't change them; they pong. Um, pretty much their pal is the only thing they've got up their sleeve to defend themselves is that screen. Now, to be fair, Jesus at this point isn't a baby. He's probably a toddler. Um, he's somewhere between one and two, I think. And uh, But even then, they're kind of cute. And I, I know we've got the terrible twos, but really, they're, they're, they're not all that intimidating. All of which makes the reaction by King Herod to the announcement by the Magi, the wise men from the East, that the king of the Jews has been born and it throws him into a spin. A child is born in Bethlehem, and a 70-year-old king is actually terrified. In fact, not only him, the whole of Jerusalem is disturbed. Let me read to you the opening words of Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. King Herod is seriously, the moment he hears that phrase, the one born King of the Jews, he is threatened. Why? Because, heck, that was his title. The Roman Senate 40 years earlier had had appointed him as King of the Jews. And uh, what we have here is a classic clash of two kings. Uh, The legitimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ, Um, his credentials were there. We saw that last week. His genealogy was part of those credentials. Um, The Bible was clear that when the the king whom God had appointed would come, he had to fit certain criteria. For a start, he had to be human. He wasn't going to be an angel, uh, and it needed to come from Eve. And then we're told that he had to be Jewish, a, a son of Abraham. So salvation was not going to be found in anyone else but 
someone from the Jewish line. And then within that, he had to come from one of the 12 tribes. The line He had to be a line of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so it's getting narrower. He had to be born in Beth. Oh, sorry, he had to come from the line of King David. So it's even a narrower line. He had to be born to a virgin. Well, that pretty much knocks out most people. Uh, and then he had to be born in Bethlehem. Bang, 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 bang. And then you've got Jesus' credentials there. Um, Herod, on the other hand, was clearly an illegitimate king. In fact, he was so illegitimate, he actually destroyed his own genealogy records because they were testifying against him. Now, if you think you're a little bit insecure, you've got nothing on this dude. He was, Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian, uh, says that whenever he saw anyone as a threat, he took them out. He murdered his favourite wife which makes you wonder what he did to the other wives. Um, He killed not one, but three of his own sons. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his uncle. In fact, it was said of Josephus that it was safer to be Herod's, uh, sorry, it was said by Josephus, it would be better to be um, Herod's Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. You're, you're, you're going to be safer because anyone that appeared to be a threat to his power was on his hit list. He was so intimidated by being dethroned. Uh, At this point, he organizes the mass slaughter of every boy under two in Bethlehem and within the vicinity. Verse 6. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Oh dear, how different are these two kings? This butcher of Bethlehem who who killed those boys uh, and spilt their blood. Uh, he did not want to share his power with another and those dear boys had to pay the price. You, you would call this the dark side of Christmas, the one we sort of glean over. Jesus, in contrast, wow, he wouldn't allow, he would only allow his own blood to be spilt. Remember when, when they came to arrest Jesus and Peter drew his sword and sliced the slave's ear off, Jesus healed the slave's ear and then says to Pete, put it away, Pete, we're not going to play that game. Um, the only one who's dying this weekend will be me. Um, well, he didn't quite say that, but that's my paraphrasing. Um, and then when you get to Jesus' crucifixion, surprise, surprise, above his head is the sign, this is the King of the Jews. And so that the world would not miss the point, God made sure it was done in three languages, uh, Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. The coming of Jesus has a way of peeling open our desperation for control and our resistance to have anyone rule our life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote Narnia, uh, the Narnia series, tells, tells of his own conversion and tells it in such graphic terms. I mean, you know, he keep in mind who he is. By this stage, at the time when he got converted, he'd come from, he was an atheist professor of medieval classics, I think, in Oxford. And, um, and this is how he reflects on his resistance to becoming a Christian. He said this, What mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority. Christianity placed at the centre of what then seemed to me the great interferer, God. What I wanted, some area, what I wanted was that some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. And he talks about wanting to fence God out of his life and build a, build a barbed wire fence with a sign that says to God, no admittance, back off. 
Well, eventually God had melted his heart and brought him, and he described himself as the most reluctant convert in England. Uh, he said, at least the prodigal son walked home. I had to get dragged all the way to the, to, to the foot of the cross. Deep-seated resistance to give up control to Jesus Christ. Sound a little bit familiar? I think we can all identify with that. Uh, whether you're a non-Christian and you're still in that uh, power struggle with God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think even as Christians, you know, we we have little fenced off little areas of our life where we're saying to Jesus, this far and no further, you know. It might be your money. It might be your, uh, your, 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 your recreation. It might be the way in which you don't want to forgive someone. It might be your attitude to church or someone else. Whatever it is, it might be those respectable sins that you kind of nurse and think it's okay and say, you know, I want to keep on engaging in this pattern. That kind of rebellion. Now, to be fair, to be fair, rebellion with Christ may not look as ugly as Herod's taking out every boy under the age of two in Bethlehem in the vicinity. Most, for most people, it's a it's a posture of passive aggression, really. You know, the silent treatment. Um, you know, you know when you got that difficult person where you limit contact with him, like two to three hours a year, <laughs> maybe Christmas or Easter, uh, or a, or, a, or a birthday. I think sometimes we do that with God. You know that. Um, uh, that we, we, we're passively aggressive towards him and so we, we kind of sulk and withdraw from him and reduce our time of exposure to him to a couple of times, a couple of hours a, uh, a year. We are engaged in a power struggle. A power struggle, remember, is one person trying to change another and another person not wanting to be changed. So it makes me wonder, you know, do you think, do you think you're in a power struggle with God? That is, God who has the right to want to change you, who's calling you to himself, and you are committed to not wanting to be changed and be called by God. Or maybe the other way around. Uh, you were trying to change God to get him to agree to you, and you're discovering that he doesn't want to bend. In fact, that, that's exactly how I would describe my own conversion. For 20 years, I made God, I changed God for me, and I got him to agree to my lifestyle choices. But when I read the New Testament, I discovered, wow, God and Ray Galea think very differently. One of us will need to change. And, and really, that's how my power struggle with God ended. And that's what repentance is, really, agreeing with God's view of the world instead of your view of the world and discovering, oh, it's a much better view of the world anyway because it's built on reality. Well, Herod, Herod does not want to change and he certainly doesn't want to worship Jesus. And here you've got two responses to the true king. Um, there's no power struggle between the Magi and Jesus, none at all. These Magi, these wise men from the east, Probably from, you know, probably Persian, so from modern day Iran. Um, they come and bow before Jesus. Although I do want to say, I do remember reading a cartoon, side point, bit of humor. Uh, they say if the three wise men were three wise women, we would have had, they would have asked for directions, they would have arrived on time, they would have helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, brought practical gifts, and made a lasagna. Um, but there you go, God chose uh, men to come. Uh, now, of course, it wasn't, there wasn't three of them, we don't know how many, and they weren't kings. Uh, but they were magi and they did study the stars and they did probably function as royal advisors to the courts within East, some of the Eastern nations. Um, but they came to realize that to worship the true God, you must worship his son because Jesus is God's way to God. Uh, they stopped worshipping the stars and then started to follow the star that took them to the creator of the stars, the Lord Jesus. Now, we, we don't know how, but somehow... They had worked out that by following this, this particular star, it took them to the king of the Jews. So you can spend your time speculating, but the Bible doesn't tell you. So I find myself not wanting to waste my time in speculation and deal with the text at hand. Uh, and um, 
Uh, and you know what made these Magi wise men? It was because they came to worship the King of Kings. That's what makes you wise. You know, you can't grow in your IQ. It is what it is. Um, uh, you can grow in your EQ, you know, your ability to read people in situations. That's good. But you can definitely grow in wisdom. You can go from being a fool to being a wise person in a moment by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. And that's what made these men wise because they recognize Jesus to be the king of the Jews. You know, in the end, there's really only two options when it comes to worship. Functionally, there's only two options. You can either worship the true and living God or you can worship yourself. I mean, sure, you can worship other gods, but it's functionally just worshiping versions of yourself, really, just projected images of yourself. The Magi came to worship Jesus on his terms, recognizing him as king of the Jews. They came to bow before him, recognizing who he is and who they are in light of him. Uh, As a result, they were filled with joy because that's what always happens when you worship the right God the right way. Uh, They come uh, with gifts, expressions of deep honor, recognizing who he is. They functionally gave their best in frankincense, myrrh and gold. Because you always give your best to the to the one who is given, who is God in the flesh, who is the one who would eventually give us for their sake and our sake his very life. I always think of that song, you have given me everything, what can I do for you? Uh, they come to worship, not the stars, but the creator of the stars. Uh, and that's what, that is what uh, uh, we're all called to do. Watch how they do in verse 11. On coming to the house... They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Think about that. These men travelled 800 kilometres to bow the knee before this Jesus. Herod couldn't travel eight kilometres to find out more about this one born in Bethlehem. (laughs) And I wonder, I wonder if you're prepared to travel eight kilometres to gather with God's people and worship the King of Ling, King of Kings and Lord of Lords and give him the collective undivided attention that is right. You know, our gatherings are but expressions of the heavenly reality and anticipations of the ultimate gathering when we'll all be together around the throne. That's why God always calls us to not forsake the assembly, unless, of course, there are good reasons like health. Now, in the end, you can't win if you enter into a power struggle with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's like you're not going to win that one. I just want to tell you. Um, notice here Herod plans, he plots, he schemes, he plays his games, and all to no avail. It's a complete waste of time. If ever the word futile had an appropriate, uh, was an appropriate description, it would be here. What's crystal clear is God is in so control. Here what looks like this powerless young child where this onslaught of attacks and through all sorts of means, each time Herod plans to kill Jesus, God speaks to Joseph or the Magi, moving him here, moving him there. It's like a game of cat and mouse. It's really like a game of chess. And at every point, Herod is being outsmarted and, well, checkmated at every point till he discovers that, well, Herod will die and Jesus will go on to live, die and rise again to rule the world. Um, entering into a power struggle is the most foolish thing. I always think of that lovely little um, uh, one-liner. It, it, not one-liner, this kind of proverbial thing. It, it kind of there was that description of a uh, seeing a buffalo run headlong into a train. And the caption was, when you see a, a buffalo running headlong into a train, you may, you may admire the courage, but you have to doubt its wisdom. You may admire its courage, but you've got to doubt its wisdom. Who do you worship?
You know, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he and he alone is Lord. It's a fait accompli. We know where human history is going to end. The future is clear and certain. Herod, functionally, was worshipping himself. Let me just reflect on that just for a moment as he resisted the claim of Jesus on his life. (coughs) Excuse me. You know, um, Tim Keller kind of picks up the whole notion of idols very well and I think reminds us. I mean, again, we're talking about idols, but we're really talking about idols of the heart. And and, uh, he picks up the idols of power, approval, comfort, control. And many of them are expressed in Herod's search or rather resistance to having Jesus or anyone dethrone him. So just ponder with me for a moment what, what I found really helpful as as uh, I find myself wanting to resist the claim of Jesus, certainly in certain parts of my life. If you seek power as an idol, um, it could be success or winning at all costs or gaining influence in some area. What happens is people around you will feel used. If power is your idol, people will feel used. You will probably battle with anger and you will live in great fear of one day being humiliated. Power. Maybe your idol is approval. Kind of identify with that one particularly. People around you can feel smothered. Your battle will be to stand your ground and be a, uh, and not be a coward uh, because you'll constantly defer to the approval of others. And your great fear will be rejection. Approval. Then there's comfort. And I think this particularly is me, and I've got to battle this one. If your idol is comfort, privacy, lack of stress, Uh, wanting your freedom, then people around you can often feel neglected by you as a result. Your battle actually will be with boredom and your great fear will be stress and demands that come upon you. Mm. Or fourthly, if control is your Achilles heel, you know, and so you've mastered self-discipline and everything is certain and black and white and you have high standards, the effect of that is people around you will often feel condemned you will battle with constant worry and your great fear will be uncertainty. And if COVID hasn't exposed that, nothing else will. So whether it's power, approval, comfort or control, Jesus says, it's time for me to set you free from these idols of the heart. Uh, And in a sense, what he's saying is, you see, because he's saying to you, I'm no longer that baby in the manger or that toddler who had to escape Bethlehem to go into Egypt and fulfill those various prophecies. I have become the man who has lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die. And I'm no longer hanging on a cross because I have paid for the sins of the world. It is finished. Nor am I lying in a tomb anymore. I have risen never to die again. Death has been defeated. And now I stand at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I will come back And tattooed on my thighs will be the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords of that you can be assured of. And uh, and Jesus saying, your longing for power is not completely wrong. Just think about an idol. There's There's a truth in it. And Jesus saying, because I will, when I come back, grant you, if you have repented, the right and authority to sit on the throne with me, to be co heirs with me. And your desire for approval is not all completely off center because I want you to know that you have my approval, the one whom every, who, who will turn every head and bow every knee. And your need for comfort is not completely 
wrong. It will be addressed. For I have come that you may have rest. And your desire for control, again, is not completely wrong. It will be satisfied. For all authority has been given to me. And what? You can relax. I am in charge. Your power struggle with God needs to come to an end. If you're not a Christian, surrender. It is like that buffalo hitting the, hitting the train. You're going to come off second best every time. But if you have surrendered to this Jesus and disengaged from a power struggle and, and deferred to him and give him the worship that rightfully his, I wonder today whether you've realised you've fenced off a little part of your life and said no admittance to God. Perhaps it's time to open that door. Let the Spirit of God convict you of that that, that opportunity you have to let Jesus be Lord and for you to be set free from your enslavement to what functionally is something that's holding you back. You're not only dishonouring God, you're actually holding yourself back and vice versa. So let's come to the throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And for some of us, for the very first time, we worship you, Lord Jesus, for you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the Saviour who came from that virgin to live this life that we, never, we, that we didn't live well, that you lived the life we should have lived. You died the death we deserve to die. You rose again, uh, defeating death, declaring us forgiven. You have seated at the right hand of the Father and now you will come back to take us to be with you and our longings for control and comfort and approval and a power will actually, in its own mysterious way, actually be fulfilled righteously by our union with you and all for your glory and our good. Oh Lord, we bow before you, set us free. And for those of us who are Christians, Lord, who have still got that little section of our life that we're holding on to, where we're keeping you out, that fence that we've built in some area of our life, that person we refuse to forgive, that um, that uh, that uh, that wallet that we refuse to be generous with, the uh, the difficult person we're avoiding, the the games we're playing, the the gossip we engage, whatever it is, Lord, help us, help us by your Spirit to set us free and to align our will with yours, to open that door and let your Spirit do His work in helping us to become more like the Lord Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen.